This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio today is Lee Chen Ren, the director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, we've got record highs in the market here. The S and P 500 breaking breaking out a bit. Yeah, just flirting and actually surpassed a few minutes ago. The all-time high, uh, who would have thunk it, as the saying goes. Uh, a couple of things I would point out, and that is earnings uh, are coming in pretty good. Um, yeah, we had some disappointments in 3M, Amazon uh, last night, although it's now only down 1.5% after being down much more in, in earlier trading. I think what's most important is the, the fact that, uh, that there hasn't been a lot of negative guidance going forward. A few lowerings, but that's normal, and a lot of uh, CEOs are expressing confidence that their earlier forecasts will hold, and that, I think, is is, uh, encouraging. Also, the fact that we have the Fed next week, consensus is definitely – they're going to they're going to cut one more time, and then they're going to say we're going to pause, and that's pretty much the consensus. If if Powell didn't think he had the votes to do that, he would be making speeches right now. So he thinks he has the mo- votes. There will be a couple dissents to be sure, uh, but I think the pause, uh, which will be announced after this, in lowering rates will um, calm some of the uh, hawks and into going along with this uh, final, uh, what's called mid-course correction. Um, some, you know, again, we've got some favorable news on the trade deal. We said that's always going to be dominant. Uh, we had a standstill agreement three weeks ago, and now we're trying to make some further progress. Uh, the 25% tariffs are certainly things that I think uh, the market says ain't going to happen. Um, and uh, so they're looking ahead towards another Fed cut and um, a earnings bounce back uh next uh, quarter and into 2020. So, you know, making, as you as you start to come towards, you know, setting these new levels in the S&P, how do you think about the catalyst that could be what drives it? Like, as you think about the Fed is getting towards, you know, maybe they're pausing. What, what is it? Is it future earnings? Is it reduction of uncertainty? Like, what's, what could be the drivers for the second half or going into well, next year? Well, I think that, 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 again, now that we that pretty much conclude there were going to be a cut, which they want one more cut 
it brings the term structure to a normal shape so that inversion was very brief and, and not very strong. And so that is a positive. Now, to be sure, GDP is going to be coming in next week, and the third quarter GDP is going to be low, uh, a little bit below one and a half. However, this quarter is starting out at two, and hopefully with a trade resolution or further trade resolution, we can pick up the pace of capital expenditure and move well above two in 2020. I think that is basically what the market uh, wants to uh, is, is looking forward to. And again, I mean, uh, even though the rate hikes will be stopping, look where we're stopping. The 10-year is at 179. I mean, that's a real easy, uh, you know, mark uh, for equities. Uh, below two looks like it's going to be in the near future. That's not hard to beat uh, in terms of putting your money in the S&P, which we know has a dividend yield that is actually above 2%. So as a result, you know, uh, equities equities are, are looking like the place to be as fixed income um, is is going to be stuck in a low gear for a long, long time. Yeah, that that point is, I know, something you're, you're starting to focus on. I mean, how this two, it, when you think about the longer term there, like what's what's your sense on on the potential why why it may stay down so low see i think uh, and we've talked about this uh, a lot on our shows that the it's 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 a combination of first of all slower growth i mean we're not 3 3 and a half percent we're closer to 2 hopefully 2 and a half percent an aging population longer life expectancy more saving that's being generated, more risk aversion from an aging a wealth holding class, tremendous demands for liquidity, which means that even though governments are spewing out a lot of uh, uh, debt, uh, the demand exceeds the supply that keeps these rates really low. I see none of those uh, basic economic forces uh, reversing themselves anytime soon. Very good. Thanks for, for taking some time to start the show. Great. Hopefully we'll talk again next week. Sounds good. We're going to turn it over to our guest, who is Mark Chandler. Uh, he's been on the show a number of times, currency strategist, chief market strategist at Bannock, Burn Global Forex. Mark, thanks for coming back. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's always a pleasure. Uh, tell us a little bit about your worldview as you, as you look across the world. I, I know you focus a lot on, on the currency markets. And you know, where, where, how, how are you looking at growth and, and interest rates and, 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 what, and the way you're, you look at the, the, the world today? Yeah, so I, I think I'm, uh, maybe it's not a Cubs fan. And even though I'm optimistic about the Cubs next year, uh, I don't really share uh, Professor Siegel's optimism about the growth in the economy picking up uh, back next year. I think that this mid-course correction is, uh, is, what, is what the Federal Reserve wants to frame it as. But I'm looking at numbers that suggest that rather than increase the pace of activity, the U.S. economy is slowing down. And so we, we grew uh, uh, better than 2% in the first quarter, slower in the second quarter. And I think we get this third quarter print, and the Bloomberg consensus is about 1.5%. I'd be a little bit lower than that, but more importantly than third quarter GDP, at the end of next week, we get non-farm payrolls. They'll be the first look at Q4. And I'm looking at something below 100,000, uh, partly dragged down by strikes, not just GM strikes, but especially GM strikes. And we're losing, we'll try to lose about 55,000 or 50,000 manufacturing jobs due to the strike. 
But I think that the economic data has consistently disappointed in recent weeks, beginning with employment data for September, softer than expected CPI and PPI, weakness in retail sales, weakness in industrial production. And I think that this hope of business capital picking up is, I think this is just a pipe dream, and literally a pipe dream, meaning that a lot of the business investment from the U.S., the CAFX has been concentrated in the oil patch. And we're looking at rising oil inventory levels. The uh, EIA continues to revise down U.S. Uh, output growth next year. So now it's the lowest, and it'll project now to be the lowest in several years. So I think this offers a soft backdrop. I do agree with the professor. One cut now, the next week, nothing in December, but I'm looking at the possibility of two more rate cuts next year ahead of, say, the middle of the year sort of thing when the Fed has to move to the sideline because of next November's elections. Um, so when you think about how the U.S. is performing in, in a global context and what is how does that view square with, with else, what's also going around the world? Yeah, sure. I think that's one of the issues that uh, you asked the professors, why are interest rates so low in the U.S. still? And I have the, uh, the, the S&P yield only at about 190. So it's only about uh, 10 or 15 basis points above the U.S. But I think the reason, one of the reasons why U.S. yields are so low is because they're still looking at a world in which there's something like $14 trillion of negative yielding bonds. And so I think the U.S., uh, besides the U.S., Canada and the U.K., also have positive yielding bonds, but not nearly as deep of a bond market as we have. So I think this we're keeping up more of our savings at home, and we've seen the latest uh, tick data, that the Japanese were huge buyers of U.S. bonds. Because remember, you've got a negative yield of about 15 basis points on their tenure. So I, I think that in a relative sense, I'd agree that the U.S. looks slight, somewhat better, but we are slowing down. And, that, and for me, one of the last stages of a dollar bull market takes place as interest rate differentials, especially at the short end, move against the U.S., and that's been what's happening for the past year. Since last November, the U.S. premium over Germany has fallen by about 100 basis points. It's fallen against the U.K. since last November. It's fallen against Japan since last November. As we sit here today, Canada is now a higher yielding than the U.S. And so I, I, for me, this is just one of the characteristics of the last stage of that, of that big dollar rally. But we've had uh, the dollar this week has snapped a three-week decline. And I'm looking for a technical correction to continue to lift us through about the middle of next week before we uh, sort of through into the uh, FOMC meeting. And then a sell-off, a dollar pulls back a bit on the back of what I'd expect to be a very soft jobs report. Interesting. Now, and, and so as we've talked before and, and in the past, you thought the dollar was going to break parity on the euro, but we never quite got there. Have you, have you given up hope that that is a... Uh, or not hope, but have you given up thoughts that that is something that that's going to happen in this, this cycle? It's sort of you think the dollar's strength over versus euros is, is is overdone there? Yeah, so I I think that was the the goal was to see a test on parity, uh, but I think we we stopped shy of that. Uh, it's been kind of interesting what happened. We began the month of October at new two year lows for the euro, which is about one hundred eight eighty, and we rallied almost three cents this month, and that's why I think we get this like technical correction pulling us back here, but. I do think that the worst news for Europe, uh, as far as their own economy, is probably behind us. We still have a, uh, a hurdle, and that'll be about the middle of next month, when President Trump has to make a decision about those auto tariffs. So I'm thinking that uh, while the professor is right, there seems to be the third tariff truce between the U.S. and China, 
not sure how long that's going to last or whether we really get a big agreement. And by big agreement, I mean that what they're talking about now is just going back to where we were in 2017. The Chinese would buy about $20 billion worth of our agriculture, and they are demanding that we remove our t reduce our tariffs back to 2017 levels. And so uh, I, I think that the attention can shift then and more focused as we've seen the president focuses on our strategic allies like Europe and Canada and Japan for a lot of this trade stuff. Uh, and do you think how did you know we've, we thought we we're going to get a Brexit deal passed that uh, didn't quite get there? Any any views on the ultimate how the next few weeks plays out? Are they you're going to get kicked out? No deal Brexit? Or are we going to get some extension? It's a lot of news back and forth. Yeah, isn't this kind of ironic? You know, when the, when the UK was slow to join the EU, the French blocked them. For a while, the French were the main hurdle for the UK to join the EU. And now it looks like the French want the UK, only want to give the, the, the British a one-month extension, while, the, of course, the British have asked for a three-month extension. My best guess is uh, this, is, this next week, Monday, uh, the, the uh, Prime Minister Johnson is going to try to push for elections. This is going to be the third time he's asking for an election, and I'm not sure he's going to get it. So it's just like a catch-22. The Europeans are saying, we're not going to tell you how long of an extension we're willing to grant you until we see your election intentions. And Labor Party in the U.K. is saying, we're not sure we're going to support elections until we see how long the extension is. So I think it's a mess. I think Sterling is holding up remarkably well. We tested, you know, we began like the month there, one, maybe it was around the 10th of October. We were on 122. We rallied eight cents. And now Sterling is finishing the, the week near its lows, just above 128. I think we can still go down to 126. I think that it's going to be, still be dragged out. I know a lot of my friends, a lot of investors I know, are, are sort of like uh, fatigued with this Brexit talk. But we, there's no, like, uh, stopping this. Because even if they get this agreement to leave, next year they're going to, they've got one year basically to negotiate a fresh trade agreement. And if they can't do that, they're still going to leave uh, the EU after this one-year transition period with the WTO standards uh, rather than a free trade agreement. Yeah, that's that's when you say like the the bottom of Europe's news is is sort of behind it. You know, now maybe that's true. Maybe the eurozone is is more plugged into the global economy, and Germany's uh, started to perform really better. Maybe that's just optimism on China and sort of the rest of Asia. Um, but it, you know, there, there seems like there's this risk of all of that Brexit having some kind of impact. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there, there, there's uh, these. So for me, there's two issues. One is the European domestic economy. And there's some slight, and I really mean slight, first glimmers of hope that the worst is behind the Eurozone economy. Not just the PMI, the IFO survey showed a little bit better in expectations. German exporters are reporting slightly better order books. Things might be just turning after, after about a year and a half of this uh, weakening. And with negative interest rates, counter-cyclical counter spending. But the, you're right, that the, so that's one set of the economy. The other are these exogenous risks that's trade with the U.S., slowdown in China, separate from the trade issue, and still a, uh, an unsettled Brexit issue. Any, uh, when you look across the, 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 the international side and Europe towards China and emerging markets, any view of what, what's happening in, in those markets? Is, is all of EM just trading around China? Like, where's your sense on, on what's going on? I think, it's, I think that uh, we've seen a couple of interesting things globally. You know, the, the Nikkei and the topics, the Japanese benchmarks are at record high, excuse me, at new highs for the year uh, today. Uh, Brazil is making new record highs uh, thanks that they've got a pension reform through. Uh, so I, I think there are some bright spots. 
The one currency that does interest me right now, Norway, it's uh, the Norwegian krona is a the, the country itself, the economy is strong. It's the only major central bank raising interest rates, but the currency is near record lows against the uh, against the uh, dollar and euro. Hmm. And uh, I think that uh, you know the OECD's model of purchasing power parity still says it's a bit uh, overvalued. Uh, but I think that there's some good, good value there. Uh, the problem is it's not a very diversified economy. We're looking at an economy that's relatively strong. Central bank is raising interest rates, and they've got what we say is a net uh, inve- net international investment position. That is, they own a lot more of foreign assets than foreigners own of Norway. So its balance sheet is strong. I think the currency at record lows, there's going to be some value there. We're talking with Mark Chandler, Chief Market Strategist, Bannockburn Global Forex. Uh, it's it's interesting, Mark. So if they're raising rates, you know, the Fed's cutting rates, um, is it just is, what is the valuation story? Like, where do you why do you think it is weakening towards these record lows? Yeah. So I, I, just, I mean, partly I, I, it's a puzzle for me, partly, but partly <laughs> it's a good reminder that raising that currency are driven by a lot of things. Besides just interest rate differentials. Yep. And for example, so Norway, what they do is they, they get a lot of money from their energy sector. And rather than have that energy sector cause what we, we call it a Dutch disease, that is the energy sector inflows lead to a currency appreciation that makes the rest of the economy uncompetitive. So what, the, what Norway does, it takes that oil revenue and it basically reinvests it overseas. And in the kind of world I think that we're in now, where the uh, where there's really been a, a the opposite of diversification, so the concentration of capital, that Norway does not attract a lot of portfolio investors because they don't have a diversified economy, and I think that's seen generally as a risk-off type of uh, a, 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 it suffers in a risk-off environment, and so uh, yeah, I, I think that Norway's weakness, and it's sort of the same thing with Sweden. Sweden's been weak, but. Their, their central bank has been uh, easing policy. They've got negative interest rates. And so and that's why I think that like partly what I can do on an international level is just see some of these outliers. And Norway looks like an outlier, partly because its currency weakness can't fully be explained by these fundamentals. Very interesting. Um, when you think about you know the company side, I mean, you're, during these earnings reports, with, with you're, you're, you got some interesting places where some people were seeing uh, you know, hedging losses, and actually, one company showed sort of forex gains. Any sense of how companies are treating forex? Are they doing anything differently um, with with the recent moves in the dollar the last few years? I haven't seen a change in behavior. I mean, I, I know that when you and I talked in the past, we looked at the hedging, and sometimes uh, one can be paid to hedge. Uh, usually, you'd think that hedging costs you, that insurance costs you, but sometimes those interest rate differentials work in. Uh, work in your favor, so the hedge doesn't really, you really get paid to hedge. But I see corporations, and, and these days when I joined Bannockburn, they really specialize in small, medium-sized businesses, helping them navigate the foreign exchange market. And I sort of see them as being still very disciplined. You know, a, a hedge fund or an asset manager might be looking for the next trade idea. But these these businesses, you know, they send out an, they have a very disciplined approach. They send out an invoice, they hedge it. They, they hedge, say, 75% of, of anticipated revenue. Uh, when they when they decide to buy a company, uh, they they have uh, they take on op- often take options to take uh, to sort of manage that contingent risk. So I sort of see corporations as sort of wrestling with we've got a low volatile world in currency still, uh, but the uh, but the uh, I say the, the non-economic factors like presidential tweets, uh, like a geopolitical developments, are all things that sort of make it harder for these corporate treasurers 
Uh, but I think that the general pattern is the same. That's very disciplined hedging exposures. Is there a type of is there a sector or a type of company that you think is hedging it more than others in, in sort of the, the the work that you guys are doing with clients? It's hard to see it across this across the spectrum because it's hard to, to separate who's hedging more from who's got more exposure. And and typically, uh, well, I, I say one interesting challenge we have is with the tariffs. Some businesses say I'm working with a cheese company. They import cheese from Italy, and now they're slapped with a 25 percent tariff. So it, it makes them have to like watch the currency even closer, hmm. and uh, having to wrestle with. That's why I say these non-economic things like political decision to make a tariff. Yeah, no, it's not an easy, not an easy situation. Um, anything else going on in in Asia that that you know? I, the, certainly, the China Hong Kong situation has been front and center in, in terms of all these. When you talk about non non-economic issues, like how, any other things that you're watching over in Asia. Well, I think that China remains very fascinating. I mean, uh, they, they let the currency go above seven over the summer, and we, the U.S. accused them of currency manipulation. The U.S. Treasury is going to have to issue their report. Uh, it's delayed already. And I think it's going to be interesting whether they continue to cite China as a currency manipulator. China hasn't really let the currency go very far. In fact, I might say that uh, this year to date now, the currency is off by about 2.5%, which is really which is minor right, in the world of currency. Uh, I think that uh, many many people think that the Hong Kong dollar and the peg could be could come under pressure, but I think that this is the last thing that China would want to happen is is breaking the peg while all this uh, uncertainty is going on. I think people are also looking at who's going to be who are the winners and losers from this trade conflict. We're seeing a lot of interest in Taiwan, as well as Vietnam and Thailand as alternative places in Asia for production purposes. Chen, we haven't had you yeah. in the conversation. Anything uh, while I bring up China? Anything from your your standpoint that you're watching? Actually, I remember Mark. Last time you were you were here, we talked about China currency um, and uh, how China has been really restrained in not you know devalue too much. I still think that it's China want to get people to uh, used to the not having some kind of psychological barrier. Remember last time we talked, it's you know seven that there's all these expectations that, you know, it will move, never move higher than seven. So I think China, you know, broke that in some way. Um, and also last time we talked is about the GDP growth. You know, people are so fixed on the 6%. And last quarter, I think China's uh, GDP is uh, just 6%. So in next year, there is a likelihood it's going to be a little bit lower than 6%. So I think in terms of China, um, at least my feeling is Chinese government want want people to have a little bit, you know, like a, so that they can move the numbers closer to what what the actual numbers are. But I do want to have a, a question on Mike in terms of emerging market um, currency hedge. Um, you know, currency hedge it's an area I I don't I have not studied a lot, and I'm still learning. Just from your point of view, like in terms of currency hedging, is it still you know mixed? Like, worth it to hedge uh, emerging market? Yeah, that's a good question. Hedging emerging markets. I, I tell you a story. I once went to a U.S. auto manufacturer, to the treasurer's office, and I was going to present on the G10 currencies. And there was a good, uh, robust discussion. And then it came to emerging markets. And we had flown in a, uh, a colleague of mine from uh, from Asia to give a, a view of emerging markets. And the, and the treasurer said that they don't hedge emerging market currencies. They think it's just the cost of doing business. Because these emerging market currencies oftentimes 
more often than not, have higher yields in the U.S. dollar. And so the cost of hedging uh, sometimes is, is quite expensive. And so, uh, so I, I find it, it varies from company to company and oftentimes on the personality or the, or the desire of the, of the person who's got to make that decision. I think generally speaking, emerging market currencies are very expensive to hedge. Think about even like a country like uh, Brazil or Mexico, where the, uh, where the rates aren't as high as they used to be, but they still are a large premium over the U.S. So I think it's, it's a question of, uh, it's not simply, I think, a question that can be deduced from high economics and what, what makes, because uh, the cost of the hedge for, say, a U.S. automaker and a, uh, a chip maker might be the same. But one philosophy might be to hedge their currency exposure. The other might be incorporate that into their prices. Do you think there's a difference in if they have more revenue coming from it versus just more costs? Like if they maybe they think these currencies are just going to depreciate over time with the higher inflation and higher interest rates. And, you know, so they're happy to, like, see their costs go down over time. Now, if, if all of their depending on if their revenues there, um, you know, do, do they do they does that make any difference to them? Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. I mean, that if you have a. Uh, if you have brick and mortar and you've got to pay employees and you've got you're incurring domestic costs, uh, that might make make it more likely to hedge, or it might more more likely to even keep uh, to keep the cur- to build up uh, local currency to use that. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I don't really know how that breaks breaks down. But also remember, there's another group here, and that are the debt managers. Remember, a lot of emerging market countries are issuing dollar-denominated bonds. And corporates also often issue uh, currency bonds. Like think about like a company like Apple, who's got plenty of cash, but they also issue uh, non-dollar bonds. And partly it might be to increase the uh, investor base. Uh, so there might be other reasons why they might do it. Oftentimes, when I work with a company who's going to make a, uh, an acquisition in another country, the choice isn't just between do you buy spot or do you buy an option. Sometimes, uh, especially the larger businesses. They will take a liability in that country. So rather than buy the currency, in effect, they borrow it. Yep. So they have this currency. They've got this foreign currency asset, and now they've got this liability to offset it. So sort of internally hedging. And I think there's a, a greater move for businesses to find internal ways to hedge as a way to avoid having to pay the spread and go to the market. Well, that makes sense. Uh, so we talked about a lot of different topics. Mark, any you know any other things we, we haven't covered that you, uh, you think we should be focused on here on the global global outlook? Well, I'd say one thing that I'm working on that's not fully, uh, I haven't fully like written about it much, but it seems to me that, you know, I wrote this book called Political Economy of Tomorrow, came out a couple of years ago, and I was thinking that after the end of the, after the financial crisis, which marked the end, I think, of the Reagan-Thatcher liberalization, I was thinking we would have an interregnum period. But instead, it seems to me that economic nationalism is filling in that, filling in that, that vacuum. And that economic nationalism has a couple of characteristics. Okay, first, it's about import substitution strategies, things that countries used to import. Consider this in the U.S. We import something like 95% of our antibiotics from China. I just, I just think going forward, we're not going to do that. And so you've got import substitution strategy. You've got other things to basically check to the primacy of economic efficiency, whether it's environment, whether it is these U.S. corporates who wrote this uh, letter over the summer about share, uh, stakeholders over shareholders. Uh, it's uh, by putting economic security, national security, ahead of economic, uh, economic primacy. So I'm seeing a lot of things checking, like this pure drive for economic efficiency. 
And that, I think, will create opportunities. Well, it creates winners and losers, and for the you know, creates opportunities for others. All very interesting. We'll keep us, uh, keep us informed as you do more work on it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.